Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Ernoff, and here with me today is Dr. Catherine Hudun, a pediatrician with Providence Grand Pediatrics in Spokane, Washington. And today we're answering your questions about teen well checks and what you and your teen should expect during a visit to the doctor. So let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Hugh Dunn. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. We're very happy to have you. Let's start with a really easy one, though. Tell us a little bit about your role. So I am a pediatrician at um, Providence Grand Pediatrics here in Spokane. And so I see kids from when they're born to basically when they graduate high school and sometimes a little bit beyond, depending on the kid. Um, I do work a little bit in the hospital and um, see newborns there um, right after they're born and then usually follow them through to the clinic. Um, I'm also involved in medical education. I've recently taken on position of division chief of pediatrics for the medical school at Pacific Northwest University. And so we have everybody learning about everything pediatrics all the time here between parents and kids and students. Um, so it's, it's just a wonderful career where I'm a lifelong learner and um, everyone um, just kind of has a nice team approach to doing everything they can to make sure their kid is healthy and thriving. Well, it doesn't sound like you're bored. That's for sure. <laughs> Definitely not bored. No. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people listening may know this, especially parents, but for those who don't, what would a parent expect when they do a well check? Like when, what's, what's a general well check looks like? And, and is it for kids of all ages? It is for kids of all ages. And it looks very different depending on what age that kid is. So in general, what we're looking at for wellness visits are growth, development, safety, and general health. So as a very small child, a baby, a toddler, we are really making sure that there's um, nothing's going wrong with development and their growth parameters are exactly what they would hope, what we would hope them to be. And that would mean they're growing, they're not losing too much weight, they're not gaining too much weight, but also making sure that really the parent is doing okay. Um, because it's so very important when they're so young that we're looking at both that parent and child dyad. As they get a little bit older, we talk more and more about safety because as kids get a little bit farther away from the home and they start taking more risks at school and recess and riding their bikes and things like that, then it becomes a lot more safety focused, making sure that things are going well um, at school, at home, and with their friends. And then as they get into teenage years, it's again, kind of helping to navigate through all of that difficult strife that every single adolescent goes through um, because it's such a, a rich time of development, although to most parents, uh, it doesn't feel that positive. <laughs> it's kind of like an uh, alien abduction sometimes, uh, being a parent of an adolescent. So, it's, um, you know, there's good days and bad days, but a lot of the time it's like, man, where did my kid go? So also helping parents navigate the difficult time that is adolescence and teenagehood. Are you having conversations with the, the, the youth or, and or the parent, I guess, around mental health during these visits as well, or at least, you know, dipping your toes in the water? Absolutely. Um, you know, especially during COVID, it's been um, impressive, the depression and anxiety that I've seen in kids and not just teenagers, but kids that are even younger than that. Um, and so we do for every one of our kids, um, starting at the age of 12 that comes in, we ask simple screening questions to assess for depression because it is so prevalent. 
And uh, I would say based on my experience over this last year, it's probably increased by three times a minimum of what we're seeing on positive responses, meaning they are actually having some symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, so every kid 12 and up is getting screened at least once a year to make sure that they're not suffering from depression and or anxiety. Um, but it tends to kind of naturally and organically come up in conversation a lot of the time where they say, man, they're just, they're not doing the things that they used to like to do. And um, they're just isolating a whole bunch. They seem really down. And so navigating that really difficult line of, okay, what's normal adolescent behavior and then what's depression and anxiety, um, that is something that, that we're doing quite a lot of. Well, you, you mentioned COVID. I assume that that, at least early on, probably had some pretty big impacts. Were you able to do these kind of visits virtually? We were in a lot of ways. So we didn't do the full comprehensive wellness visit virtually. Um, for one thing, you can't do a good physical exam that's really thorough for a wellness visit. Um, but for another, especially with teenagers, they, um, they do not feel very comfortable, generally speaking, having these kinds of visits over the computer. Um, so much of what we do is about building rapport, building trust, um, and developing a relationship with the teenager um, that it is, it's very difficult to do. Now, if I have a, a child that has been um, suffering and, and I've been treating them for a year or something like that for depression and anxiety, it's a little bit easier to do virtually. Uh, but we, you know, our, our poor kids have suffered so much by being relegated to the virtual realm in so many ways. I, um, if we don't have to do it virtually, I try to do it in person. Well, you, you know, you talked about kind of developing a rapport. What would you say to parents who feel like their kid isn't really connecting with their primary care physician or, you know, or maybe the parent isn't connecting? Is, are there questions that they should be asking? Should they feel comfortable asking for a different doctor? Absolutely. I, I say the same thing about therapists, about doctors. It's not, uh, when, you know, when you talk about therapy, especially with teenager, I tell them it's not that counseling sucks and it's stupid. It's just that maybe it wasn't a very good fit to begin with. And that also doesn't mean that it's a bad provider, whether it's a counselor, whether it's a physician, a nurse practitioner, um, it's just, gosh, that's not a good fit. And relationships are so important. And so while we're talking about, um, you know, a lot of these difficult conversations that come up in adolescence, if you don't have that good uh, relationship where you feel that you can have open, non-judgmental, non-biased conversations, then absolutely say, gosh, I don't know if this relationship is working out really well. Um, my child doesn't feel as comfortable. Do you have other suggestions? And that's something that I never take personally because I know that I don't like everybody and not everybody likes me. It's communication style. And so most people don't take that personally at all. No, I would agree, although we like you. Um, talk to me a little bit about at what age do parents maybe stop being in the exam room or stop being with the patient? For me, never. Um, they have a small portion of time that gets bigger and bigger with age. Um, but the parent is so vital to a teenager. And while they do need their time for privacy, and so there's always time that I make that where we do have one-on-one -on -one conversations with the teenager. Um, it's uh, it's so important to have the parents still in the room for the nuts and bolts of it. I don't know if you've ever asked a 16-year-old, 
how is your day? Are you worried about anything? You're going to get, nope, I'm fine. And then you go and you talk to the mom. Well, what about your acne? And what about the kid that's bullying you at school? And what about this and that? So a part of what we do with our one-on-one -on -one conversations with teenagers is it's kind of like training wheels on how do you talk to a doctor? How do you recognize that we have seen it and heard it all before? You can't surprise us with anything. So how can we develop that relationship where you feel it's okay to come with me to me with those um, more embarrassing questions or those difficult conversations? So I always start my visits with the parents in the room because it's a whole, it's a team, even though they're a teenager and they're learning how to develop that autonomy, which is so, so important, both developmentally and socially. Um, the, the parent is still the number one fan of that kid. And so if anything needs to happen, that needs to be done um, within the realms of confidentiality uh, with that parent involved. Well, I think you bring up a really important topic with kind of the, the embarrassment sometimes, right? Like we have to ask questions and there's definitely things that kids go through that are probably embarrassing. How do you, how do you handle that? How do you maybe change the way you ask questions or how do you, how do you help alleviate that embarrassment or fear overall? A lot of the time, depending on the kid, I will ask the questions about their friends and ask, gosh, do any of your friends do this? Do any, are any of your friends vaping? Are any of your friends texting and driving? Is that something that's happening? Um, one thing that our clinic will do is we have a um, confidential questionnaire that we let the teenager fill out by themselves where it does ask all of those hard questions on paper. Some kids don't or aren't as honest on that piece of paper, but other kids, because there's not another person in the room, they're able to be more, more honest and um, write out the things that are, that are bothering them. So that helps alleviate it. Um, it's also about normalizing and so placing questions within the context of, hey, you know, I've been seeing a lot of kids that are your age that are struggling with this. How do you feel about that? And right, right there, it takes away the stigma. It takes away that feeling of being alone, like I'm the only one that is suffering from this. Um, and it makes it more of a supportive environment. At what age, though, do you start having those questions change, right, to things that maybe are more, quote unquote, adult type problems? Or, or I mean, do you, is it different with every patient or do you kind of have a, a checkbox that you go through as they age? I'm pretty standardized, as um, I think are most people at the age of 12. So this depends state to state based on um, teenage confidentiality laws. I think last I checked, there's 31 states that do have teenage confidentiality laws in place. And so that says, okay, by themselves, they can get mental health care, sexual health care, things like that. Um, but it's pretty standard based on um, guidance that we have from the American Academy of Pediatrics to start asking these questions at the age of 12. Um, I get really glad when the teenager or the preteen, the 12 year old, turns to their parent and either laughs or says, what does this mean? Because that means we're in good territory. If they have to ask what something means, then, uh, then we're okay for another year at least. Um, but at the age of 12 is relatively standard. It's kind of my year to give that warning shot of, hey, we are gonna start doing things a little bit differently. After we're done with our regular checkup, you get the opportunity to learn how to talk to a doctor by yourself. And we are gonna talk about those hard teenage questions. And it's not about what I think you're doing or not doing. 
It's just that sometimes kids surprise us and start doing things a little bit earlier than we expect. And I want you to know that this is a safe place to talk about that. Are there things that you're seeing, obviously the pandemic I would imagine has differences because of, of what kids are experiencing, fear and, and social anxiety and that sort of thing. But are there other things that you're seeing more common that you have to talk to kids to now than maybe you did five years ago, 10 years ago? Probably social media is one of the biggest things that I have integrated into my discussions um, because uh, you know social media in, in so many ways is great. And I know, I think you're the director of social media in some way, so I'll, I'll never, never disparage social media to, <laughs> to you, certainly. Um, but really what I worry about is we have some broken algorithms within social media where you you have kids that, that are experiencing what we would call confirmation bias. And so you have things where um, I, topics that teenagers are, are interested in are starting to polarize. And so they're only seeing people who agree with them. Um, and so that changes the way that they're able to experience diversity of thought. The other thing that I worry about with social media is how um, it's always your, your best self that's put forward. So you have unrealistic expectations that you're looking at. And I want them to be, have open conversations with their parents on what is realistic, what is not, what is healthy social media use, what is unhealthy social media use, where do those limits lie, and how can you learn to make those decisions for yourself. Um, and then you have all too commonly, unfortunately, lots of bullying that happens. Um, and so being aware of, you know, people are not putting their true faces forward on social media most of the time. Um, and so recognize what is true, what is not, and how can, how can you keep yourself safe from the pitfalls of social media. So that's probably one of the biggest changes that I have made in my practice over the last several years. Um, vaping is another one. Um, vaping wasn't all that common even five years ago. And now we see more and more um, kids who are trying uh, vaping, even if they're not using any nicotine or marijuana, um, sometimes even just using the chemical flavors. That's still something that we see happening. And that certainly has a high risk um, associated with it, not only for the addictive potential and the um, possible long-term outcomes, but even those really acute, severe outcomes, um, things like the vaping-associated lung injuries that we see that put kids in the ICU. Um, so hope, I'm seeing less and less of the vaping problem um, the more that kids are out of school, actually, because they're not around friends and not maybe getting in groups to make bad choices together. Uh, but it still is one that is uh, a new one that I asked about that I didn't 10 years ago. Well, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, as, as a person in social, I'm, I go pro and con, right? I think there's great connectivity. I think you have a lot of less social anxiety, especially when kids aren't in school. I think social media plays a really positive impact life. But I also think that there are a lot of negatives. You mentioned them. Bullying is a big one. Body image is a big one. I think we always have to take the good with the bad, but I think it's important. You know, I mean, I've had conversations with teenagers in my own family who were grounded and their phones were taken away from them. And it was worse than they could have imagined being homeless, right? The ability to not connect with their friends. Um, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the right the right punishment, but I think it, it is something that parents really do need to consider. And so I want to keep talking about this, but we do have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll continue this conversation on Well Checks for Teens. Have it all. 
with the memories of the war All the special things I bought They mean nothing to me anymore But to you, they were everything we were They meant more than every word Now I know just what you love me for Take all the money you want from me Hope you become what you want to be Show me how little you care How little you care How little you care You dream of glitter and gold My heart's already been sold Show you how little I care How little I care How little I care My diamonds leave with you You're never gonna hear my heart break Never gonna talk with the doc with our guest Dr. Hugh Dunn and we're talking about teen well checks and right before the break we were talking a little bit about social media and anxiety and and all the things that go along with that talk to me doc um, about kind of what we're seeing in social related to body image because it seems to me like we're hearing more and more about eating disorders and weight issues in teens and and even tweens and now gosh we're starting to see it in elementary school kids tell me tell me a little bit more about that it is one of those things that's so heartbreaking to me because I just wrap these kids up in a big hug and say, it's, it's okay. We just need to insulate you a little bit more. Um, I mean, you remember however many years ago it was where 
you know, the Photoshop on the magazines of the teenage magazines, like 17, that became a big deal because these are unrealistic expectations of, of body image. And now think of that in your face. The, the most recent statistic I, before COVID, I saw that teenagers were using screens for non-school activities about seven hours a day. Now, not all of that necessarily is social media, but it's a ton of screen time where they could be getting that in their face. And again, talking about confirmation bias, talking about normalizing things that aren't normal, the amount of filters and um, editing softwares and different apps that people can use in order to curate these beautiful, beautiful um, images that portray themselves as they wish others to perceive them is pretty impressive. And that could take even the most confident and, and assured 30-year-old and make them think twice about their body image. So I don't know that there is a increase in the rate of eating disorders based on social media, but I do know that it is uh, not helpful because you're having things that are triggering to kids who maybe have recovered from eating disorders um, and you have people that just get a little bit more sad that they don't look the way they think they should look. Well, you also mentioned earlier vaping, which, you know, we've had a lot of questions come in from parents about that. And I think you addressed it really well, but we also see a lot of questions coming in about marijuana. And it seems like it's more available these days with dispensaries and, and a lot of states have made it legal. Is that something that parents should be worried about with teens? Do you feel like you're seeing an increased usage or, or anything you could address on that? I don't feel necessarily that I have seen an increased usage. I haven't seen it move the needle very much. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not an issue because it is, um, in the older kids in particular that tend to have older friends. So the 17 and 18 year olds, there might be a little bit more use in that age group that I notice. Um, it's certainly something to be, um, I don't want to say overly concerned about. I just want to say, uh, be aware of and have open conversations of, you know, this is legal, but it's not legal for your age group. And this is why, because it's so important for their developing brain to be able to stretch and learn and grow and not be hampered by any substance use. Makes perfect sense. Well, I mentioned that we had a lot of questions coming in about vaping and, and marijuana. We also had a lot of questions about vaccines. So I think I probably could take a whole nother session with you on this. But let's start with a couple of them, which was, um, um, what vaccines do my teenagers need to get? And, and should I be getting HPV? Should I be getting meningococcal? Tell us about the teen years. Oh, great questions. So typically what we do is at the age of 11, in order to prepare kids to get into middle school, we have three vaccines that get started. One is Tdap. That's the tetanus shot that also has whooping cough and diphtheria in it. It's kind of the teenage grown-up version of the DTAP that they got when they were babies. Um, they get their first HPV shot and their first meningitis shot. They get a booster for the HPV shot, usually just the next wellness visit that they come into when they're 12. They also get a meningitis booster when they're 16. At that point, I will also talk with them about doing the different meningitis shot called the MenB. Um, people might have heard of that as Bexero or Trumemba. Those are the brand names that are most commonly in the States. Um, and that's something that we discuss as they're going off to college or whatever it is they're doing after um, they're done with high school. 
as being something very protective. So people ask me a lot about meningitis vaccine, especially the, the men B, is this something that I really need to do? And it's a great question because meningitis doesn't feel like it's in our face all that much. Um, but whenever you're going somewhere where you're at higher risk for close contact, close exposure for long periods of time, that's dorms, frats, sororities, military barracks. Those are kind of our classic um, meningitis trans transmittable areas. Um, I, I would do anything to protect my kid's brain for sure. And meningitis is a very serious disease where you have inflammation of basically the brain and spinal cord, the, the lining and the fluid that's around that. Um, and it can cause some pretty severe deficits. So if you, uh, a lot of people will recover um, after a hospitalization and they're fine with long-term antibiotics, um, but some people do have you know, residual hearing loss, um, vision changes, weakness, things like that. With, um, so that's, when we talk about meningitis vaccine that you get when you're 11 and 16, that one has four serogroups, four of those most common serogroups, that's A, C, W, and Y. Then this other, this MenB vaccine, that has the, the B serogroup of meningitis. This is one that is pretty scary because it's very fast moving. You have a young, healthy kid who uh, is feeling totally fine, then all of a sudden feels like they have a really bad case of influenza, so bad they go to the ER. Within 24 hours, they're in the ICU. Um, they have a tube that's helping them breathe. And sometimes they get really severe uh, damage to their extremities, to their legs, their arms. Um, and end up needing to have amputation. So it's a very fast, fast moving disease. Um, and I would certainly recommend protecting against that. You also mentioned HPV. That is recommended for both boys and girls. That's the shot that prevents cervical cancer. And it's also recently updated its indication for um, an oral cancer as well. So um, if you get the first shot before the age of 15, it's only a series of two shots. And the reason is that those younger kids, they actually develop a stronger, more long lasting immunity. So they don't need the full three dose series that it used to be. Um, plus we're giving it to them well before they're exposed. And so they have ample time to create that immunity. After the age of 15, it is a series of three vaccines. Well, as a cervical cancer survivor, I would highly recommend anything you can do to prevent that because it's definitely not fun. Um, before we move on from the conversation about vaccines, though, we got a question from Alice on Instagram that says, should my teen get the COVID vaccine when it becomes available? That's my daughter's name. That's so fun. Um, so what a good question. And my short answer is, I don't know yet. Um, there is still a very limited data about any kind of... Um, safety in the COVID vaccine in kids. It kind of depends on the age. So one of the brands is studying down to the age of, of 16, one of is studying down to the age of 12. Um, and so I haven't seen that data come out yet on whether or not this is something that um, a typical healthy kid should get. That being said, um, I said the exact same thing in November about adults because I hadn't seen the data yet. So I'm not just gonna blanketly say, yes, you should get a vaccine because it's a vaccine and just do the vaccine. You look at the data and I um, listen to experts that I know and I trust. And so someone like Paul Offit, who is an actual vaccinologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um, and a great communicator, is a really just an, a, an expert in the field. He's been on the, the panels that have gone through and looked at all of these from the FDA's advisory board. 
um, and is, is a remarkable expert. And so I look at the data for myself. I listen to people who are just extremely smart, like Paul Offit, um, and see what they have to say. And then I make the decision to give that data to the family. And so it becomes a family decision. Where do you place the risk versus the benefit of, um, of having a vaccine? Um, I mean, that being said, I think that the COVID vaccine is amazing. And in the adult population, anyone who's eligible to get it should absolutely get it. Um, I'm so joyful and proud of everyone for doing such an amazing job of creating an impressively effective vaccine in such a short amount of time. This is just wonderful. And I can, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel finally. Um, so the other thing that I wanted to mention, though, about the COVID vaccine is while we don't have approval um, in, in younger kids yet, and we don't really have that, that full data set, there's some really interesting um, data coming out about the flu vaccine, showing that kids who got the flu vaccine were less likely to get symptomatic COVID. And a few different thoughts behind that. Maybe it's that the flu vaccine is priming your immune system. Um, you know, we're not exactly sure why, but that might be right now the most effective COVID vaccine that we have for kids is having a flu vaccine that can actually prime their immune system or help however it can to actually prevent that symptomatic COVID. So it's the long answer is we have a lot of data that we still need to look at. And when that comes, it's going to be important to talk with your pediatrician and say, what do you think about this? What do you think of the data? Um, should, is this right for me and my family? And that might be a little different from between families. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard the flu piece yet. I love I love these conversations because I always feel so much more, I don't know, smarter at the end of it. <laughs> um, it's so interesting. It really is a very interesting um, virus. The biology of the virus is very interesting. And the questions about kids Again, just looking at risk versus benefit, I think is one of the things that, that it's going to come down to, um, you, especially because luckily kids have been spared for the most part um, from serious complications. Well, I appreciate all of the insight and we appreciate all the time you spend digging into this because I know parents don't have that kind of time either. So um, I do want to switch topics, though, because we had a lot of questions coming in about what's the difference between a well baby visit, a wellness visit. And the one that I got most recently was what's the difference between your visit and a sports physical? So a sports physical is very simple. We check you head to toe. I tend to ask three questions. Do you have problems with feeling short of breath? You feel like you're going to pass out. Do you ever have chest pain? And that's your sports physical. For boys, you have the turn your head and cough component, and that's about it. Um, so it's really not about wellness. It's about can you can you actually participate in sports? That is very different than all of the things that we've been talking about in you know the last 20 minutes. Is okay? Are you well? Do you feel safe at home? Are you experiencing any of these issues of bullying and social media problems and drinking and vaping? And how do you feel um, you are uh, at school? How do you feel like you are at home? And really delving into all aspects of health, which is more than just, can you do the duck walk and do you have scoliosis, which is more along the lines of the sports physical. So usually what I will do is I combine the two. If you need a sports physical, I'm covering all of the components of that sports physical in my wellness exam already. 
if you kind of want to be a little careful too, because you can go and spend 50 or $150 and get a sports physical form um, filled out somewhere, but you haven't gotten the whole wellness portion of it. And insurances tend to not cover both. So they only cover one or the other. Um, and if you've gone and you've done your sports physical, but then, oh my gosh, we have so many other things to talk about, including, you know, concern about substance use or concern about growth or um, picky eating or constipation, any of these very simple things that are very comprehensively covered in the wellness visit. So for the most bang for your buck, you do a wellness visit and you add a sports physical on to that. And that's just a simple form that I fill out um, because I've already covered everything in my wellness exam and then some. Well, that's really good to know. Um, we're, we're nearing the end of our time, but we did have several people ask, how do I know at what age I transition my, my child from a pediatrician to a different doctor and, and how do I do that? Usually what I will say when a kid is turning 17 is we need to start thinking about graduating from pediatrics. Usually when you graduate from pediatrics, you graduate from, from uh, your high school. Um, and then you can move on to either a family medicine physician or an internal medicine physician, um, depending on what kind of medical problems they have. Um, family medicine uh, docs are awesome and they're wonderful at transitioning care. So that's always a good thing to start looking at because as anyone in the adult world knows, it is very hard to get into a new family medicine doctor. Um, and so you move to a new part of town, you need to get a new doctor, it can take you six to eight months. And um, family medicine is just in such high demand that it's worth talking about a little bit earlier. And so that's usually why I bring it up at 17. Not that we're kicking anybody out, but that we're so excited that they're growing up and now they get to talk to a family medicine doctor. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I don't I don't have any more time with you, but I'm gonna give you the, the quick tune. Is there anything we didn't cover today that you want parents or, or even young adults to know about these visits? Uh, this has been such a great, Talk. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Um, I think the bottom line is that it might feel that you don't need to bring your teenager in for those regular visits like you did when they were a little baby, but there are so many new things that teenagers are facing these days um, that are just so difficult to navigate as a parent and as a teenager. And so your pediatrician is there for a very non-judgmental, unbiased, view of what's going on and seeing how we can best help them thrive and be successful through a time that can be difficult for anybody. Um, and so if people have questions, I would highly recommend that they talk to their pediatrician and say, I'm worried about these things. Can we talk about them in our wellness visit? And sometimes when we have everything going on that we do with COVID and with school closures, sometimes there's not even enough time in a typical wellness visit to do that. Um, and so then, but at least you know where to come for that first touch point, getting established, getting a comprehensive view of that health and wellness in a safe, non-judgmental format. Well, you are amazing so much for joining us, Dr. Kudon, and, and for everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to listen to us on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or on your favorite podcast platforms. Be sure to follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health System. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining us, Doc. Thank you. Thank you.